Cast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The odds of my coming back, if I didn't change who I was, was large. And so from that period on, I started to do the exploration necessary to do two things. First, I needed to discover my blind spots. And obviously, we don't often have someone we can trust to point them out to us. So we live with them. And what that does is it causes us to engage in self-sabotage. And we develop a pattern of self-sabotage that will continue as a pattern until we break it. And that takes a conscious awareness and then the commitment to do the hard thing. And that is face yourself. Most people aren't capable of doing that. And most business leaders aren't either. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Okay, team, strap in. We got a fun one today. Our guest is Paul Glover. Paul is known as the No BS Work Performance Coach. Paul is the go-to person for individual leaders and leadership groups who want to improve their personal, organizational, and workforce performance. A fun fact about Paul is he calls himself a recovering trial lawyer after spending 30 years as an attorney. We'll definitely get more into that in this episode. Paul is also a published author of WorkQuake. In the book, he shares proven strategies and tips for thriving in the knowledge economy. In this episode, we chat about why you need to pay attention to who you surround yourself with and how Paul had learned this lesson the hard way, which included prison time, how to face yourself as an entrepreneur and commit to your own truth, the undeniable power of feedback, particularly for business owners and entrepreneurs, and the importance of knowing your purpose and why you need to learn how to communicate it to your employees. It was a blast talking with Paul. What I particularly liked about this episode is Paul's ability to inspire with his very unique, straightforward, and humorous approach. Let's jump into our discussion with Paul. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How are you doing today? No, Tyler, I'm doing well. And and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to both you and your audience. It's a privilege. Yeah, well, we're we're honored to have you. I'm super excited. Uh, I'd love to start with a little bit about your career and uh, what you're doing now. As my bio says, I'm an executive coach and uh, 
I've developed a uh, national practice in a couple of industries, both manufacturing and uh, industrial distribution. It really suits my personality. And uh, as we had talked a little bit earlier, uh, you would never want me as your life coach, but as a performance coach, which is how I bill myself the no BS workplace performance coach, uh, I actually am very effective, but I am an acquired taste. <laughs> well, let's go right into that because you're, you're sure. a 30-year trial lawyer. So I think we're starting to set the stage to that acquired taste. <laughs> what is the life day in the life of a trial lawyer? Like, what's that personality like? What, what are you facing over those 30 years? I'd love to hear a little bit about that world. I went to law school and made some determinations early on that there were things that I just would not do. I will not do wills and estates. I don't want to do divorce law. What I found most intriguing was trial work. Uh, And I was a practicing trial attorney in a federal court. So a little bit higher than state court, never did criminal law, uh, even though I should have. Uh, But (laughs) I looked at it and I, I spent a large portion of my Uh, law school education, not going to class. I actually went to the federal court building and I watched trials because I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need to first, obviously, by watching, you start to get a feel, hmm, this resonates with me. I think I could do this. I really want to do this. Uh, and so uh, so I, I often described it. I know that trial lawyers hate it when I'm dishonest about it. Uh, I looked at it as hand-to-hand combat with rules. All right. The judge is the referee. I've got an audience. It's called the jury. And so it's performance art, but it's also hand to hand combat. Uh, Why? Well, the other side obviously has a position they're trying to prevail upon. And my client has a position that we're trying to prevail upon. And I am their champion. Most of the time, I would never put my client on the stand where they belong. Uh, First, they actually reveal who they are. And most of the time, (laughs) the jury might not like that. So so I I was their representative, their champion in the uh, in the conflict, the dispute. And my experience with trial law, I enjoyed the hell out of the trial. I hated the amount of preparation that I had to go through in determining we're ready to go to trial. First, because I was a trial lawyer, uh, I did not take cases that I didn't have them at the beginning. The issue would be some other lawyer would have the case. And when they finally got to the point of it wasn't going to be resolved, therefore it was going to go to trial, that's when I would be contacted. So the client was coming to me through someone else. And by the way, everybody has a specialty. Trial lawyer is is a specialty. And so I would get the client as they were. All of the depositions had been done, the discovery. And so I knew what the case was when I when I got it. But of course, <laughs> I needed to then mold the client into an acceptable version for the jury. And so that that was uh, that t- that took time because I never did know when the client might be forced to take the stand. So the reality was every hour in court, at least four hours of preparation before court. Wow. So you would go through a maybe a four hour period during the day of being at trial and you would immediately leave trial and you would go back to your office and you would prep for the next day for probably eight to 12 hours. Actually, when I would go on trial uh, and my, most of my trials would last four to six weeks, they were complicated. And uh, I would actually uh, I lived in the suburbs, but I would get a room downtown. I never went home. Wow. I do have a question. Is Does that take its toll on you uh, oh, just being like in, in war every day of your life, essentially, or at least the vast majority? 
Absolutely. Uh, it's yeah, yeah. an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. You, really you have to be an adrenaline junkie. And by the way, the incidence of uh, drug and alcohol abuse among trial lawyers is huge. The only profession that's worse is dentists because they're constantly looking into someone's mouth who hates them. So, so trial lawyers aren't that bad, but uh, but yeah, we were you, you had to be an adrenaline junkie. It was a very select club. And yes, you have to be very competitive, combative and have a confrontational approach. Yeah. It does take a toll on you and molds you, and not in a good way. And I imagine, I imagine that's hard also to draw that line between your work life and your home life, because all day long you're in this, you know, frictional type situation. And then somehow, I mean, you almost have to be non-human to cut the line and go, okay, now I'm going to be a non-confrontational person in my personal life, but that's probably not realistic. Uh, it isn't. And it cost me my first, my first wife and I, a fertile relationship ended because of my profession. Uh, and yeah, it is extraordinarily difficult to as my wife, my bio says recovering lawyer. And as my wife said to me when I stopped practicing law, she said, you know, it's a good thing you've stopped practicing law, but you're still an asshole. So the reality was that you you can't not be that the training that goes into becoming a trial lawyer and then the actual practicing of the craft, it molds you to think a certain way. And to act a certain way. And you're right. You have to actively decompress and at some some point get it get it out of your system. Uh, but very difficult to do. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hey, I want to dig into another area. You also have openly shared that you're an ex-felon. And I'd love to know the story behind that. What got you into that spot? And, and then, you know, how did you get to where you're at today in terms of getting out of it? Well, I, it, it's just... The profession that I was in and the people that I represented allowed me uh, to be exposed to, uh, to to bad guys. And I wanted to be a bad guy. I really did. I, I, the lifestyle and my personality uh, made me want to be like that. Now, I never went that far, but the reality is that I exposed myself to that. And, and I tell people in the coaching process, you need to believe that you will be like people you associate with, whether you like it or not. It is inevitable that if you surround yourself with bad people, with toxic people, over a period of time, you are going to become toxic. And that's what I did. And I was then given opportunities to generate uh, illicit income. And uh, you can convince yourself very quickly that this is okay. It's amazing how we rationalize. Yeah. I rationalized myself into doing exactly that. So uh, I was uh, indicted on 22 counts of white collar crimes, including embezzlements, taking kickbacks and uh, intimidating government witnesses and went to trial, had two trials in federal court and was found guilty and sentenced to, uh, to seven years in a federal prison camp. Wow. But it was I, and, and uh, to show you the, the extent of of I call it hubris. Hubris is the amount of pride you have in yourself. I stood in front of the judge at sentencing, and this was a judge that I had practiced in front of. And they offer what's called in the federal sentencing guidelines called an acceptance of responsibility reduction in sentence. Now, I'd already been found guilty, and I knew I was going to prison, and my lawyers were very clear that it was going to be at least seven years. 
And I could have 18 months knocked off of my sentence if I, in open court, said I accept responsibility for my actions. And given that opportunity, I said no. <laughs> that blows my mind because you know the game. Like if anybody yeah, knows so the game, literally. you know it better than anyone else. It just kind of goes to show you. Yeah, it's just it's mind boggling. Honestly, I love your your openness. My wife was my wife was my mind was boggled. Believe me, <laughs> that you are such a jerk. She said, "You now have taken eighteen months of our life away," and I could not do it. I told her, "I said I will not do that," and and it had nothing to do. I'd already been found guilty. Yeah, there was a question here and. My inability to accept responsibility for my own actions stayed with me for two years of incarceration. Wow. I spent two years of incarceration uh, grieving my lost profession because I was never going to practice law again. They take your law license away rightfully. And I was prohibited from practicing law for 13 years in the sentencing. That's how bad the, the judge, obviously, you don't want to be a lawyer that's found guilty of this kind of stuff. Because the system is as harsh on you as it can be. And so 13 years, that meant I entered prison when I was 50 years old. I knew I was never going to practice law again. Uh, So I lost my profession, which I absolutely loved. Uh, I had uh, taken uh, the college funds of both my kids and spent them on a defense that after two trials still got me seven years of incarceration. And I I was leaving my family for seven years to fend for themselves. So I went through two years of of feeling regret, sorrow, and loss, but that was not the overwhelming mindset. The overwhelming mindset was revenge. Hmm. I wanted to get even with everyone that I blamed for causing me to be incarcerated. And over a period of two years, I finally started to feel that 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 was not right, that I I was responsible for putting myself in prison. And and several things enlightened me. First, my wife and family visited me every 30 days. And I was six hours away in a camp, a prison camp. They drove down once a month to spend two days with me in a visiting room with 350 other inmates. That was our contact besides phone. And at some point, I recognized that their life was had been made harder because of me. Even when I was in prison, my life was better than theirs. The the struggle that they had to go through to survive was based on the mistakes that I'd made and what I had cost them. And that realization finally got through to me that instead of thinking about myself, I needed to think about others. And I needed to think about my family. But I also saw the amount of recidivism I had, for, for a prison camp, I had seven years, which was a pretty long sentence. I started off in the first year, I saw guys go home. And the second year, I saw the same guys come back. <laughs> and that repeated itself for my entire, and at some point I said, there's a problem here that I need to address so that I'm not coming back. Because if I don't address who I am, I am going to come back. And at that point, the, the, process of uh, self-awareness started to kick in, but it took two years of incarceration for me. I'm a slow learner. And I, I came to the realization that the damage I'd done to my family, I lost my profession, and the odds of my coming back if I didn't change who I was, was large. And so from that period on, I started to do the exploration necessary to do two things. First, I needed to discover my blind spots. 
And obviously, we don't often have someone we can trust to point them out to us. So we live with them. And, and what that does is it causes us to engage in self-sabotage. And we develop a, a pattern of self-sabotage that will continue as a pattern until we break it. And that takes a conscious awareness and then the commitment to do the hard thing. And that is face yourself. Most people aren't capable of doing that. Uh, and most business leaders aren't either. Why? Well, the hardest person for me to coach is someone who's successful. But I also tell them, look, you came to me for a reason. And your, my reputation is well known. So I'm not a life coach. You came to me because there's something that has to be addressed in the way you live your life or perform as a leader. But are you willing to commit to the truth and then the hard work necessary to change? Because it's hard. Believe me, it is, I've gone through the process. That's why I'm really good at what I do, because I've been there. Yeah, if anybody knows about changing, you've basically spent seven years. I don't know if you served the whole sentence, but you spent seven years of learning how to you know, basically transform yourself into uh, being accountable and and learning from your mistakes and going in a different direction career-wise too. And, and it brings me to my next question because you just brought up business leaders. You know, oftentimes in my client base and just business owners in general, finding employees, retaining employees, hiring employees, especially right now, is really challenging. What would you say to them? And a lot of times I think it's wrapped around their own leadership. What would you say to them? What's your guidance in that area and, and thoughts? Well, at first, you're absolutely correct. I am so intrigued by this concept of the great resignation. Yeah. Because it's apparent to me, as a, and it should be apparent to everyone, that if you are looking at your current workforce and the realization is 66% of the, your employees are not engaged. This is Gallup doing these engagement surveys year after year. 66% are not engaged and 17% of that 66 are actively disengaged. To me, that means they're working against your organization. Now, let's start off with that as our baseline and say, if I want engagement, which should include retention, what do I have to do? And I start off with a very basic situation here. If you're not providing psychological safety for your workforce so that they feel you trust them enough to tell you the truth, and isn't that a weird thing? That they want to tell me the truth, but they don't feel safe doing it? Why would you think anyone's going to stay there given any other opportunity? 66% are out immediately because guess what? All you have with them is a transaction. You don't have a relationship and you're paying them for time and nothing else, which is stupid. Uh, that concept is so industrial age that I'm going to pay you for hours and not outcome is crazy to me. So when I look at what you have to do, to attract people is first, I, I believe, by the way, my concepts are very simple. I go with the three A's, attraction, attention, appreciation. In any relationship, those are the three areas that matter. Now, attraction has no nothing to do with how good you look, by the way. <laughs> it has to do with the positive energy and the authenticity that you bring as a leader. And if your company does not resonate with that same level of positivity and energy, then you are you don't have the right people in leadership positions. And if you don't, you can't 
keep or retain or attract talent. There, nobody's tolerating that anymore. We had a, as, as terrible as a pandemic is, it is a test for leadership. And so if, if everybody's leaving your company, you know whose fault that is? Yours. Right. Blame it on the fact they got additional unemployment compensation. That is so much bullshit. Time to stop fooling ourselves here, right? They're leaving you or not returning because of you and your organization. Right. So you want to get better? Accept the fact that psychological safety is missing from your organization and you need to create it. You need to be willing to hear the truth about you and your organization from the people who actually know the truth and want to share it, but are afraid to. I believe that feedback is a gift. And honest feedback is truly the best gift you can get. Why don't you create a safe environment for the people who are doing the work to tell you how you can be better. I, maybe that's a long-winded answer and it's too simple because everybody's looking for some weird secret here. There is no secret. We know what works. The problem is we don't want to do it. We don't trust. We don't trust people. That's why we want everybody back in the office, by the way. You can do all the arguments you want about, are you more productive, are you not? The reality is we want you where we can see you. And in fact, if you stay in your office, we're, gonna, we're going to put spyware on your computer so we can watch you while you're at home. Oh my God, what message are you sending? It's so confusing. <laughs> anyway, by the way, I guarantee you that, that your employees are smarter than you think they are. Right. They'll figure out how to get around this. Ah, that's what happens. Most people operating in the office have come to accept the fact 75% of their time is totally wasted doing stuff that doesn't matter. Right? The other 25% of the time is the hard work that actually gets done. But the rest of the time, we're totally distracted by meaningless meetings and, and coworkers that should have been fired yesterday. I uh, call them the working dead. And they keep roaming around like a virus infecting everybody else. Let's get serious about what we want the workplace to, to do. And isn't that about outcome? That's all it is. And stop stop trying to tell them. You obviously have hit the butt. I, lo I love it. You know, you, you've like said so much in the last uh, five minutes in terms of, you know, charged really good stuff in terms of, you know, just it's outcome. It's not the hours. Yeah. It's not, if we manage by outcome, the solution, you know, that would eliminate all this work from home, work from office. Even where I recently was at, you know, the organization was so confused, you know, before COVID, they were talking about working from home as a benefit. And then COVID hit. And obviously a lot of people had to work from home. And then all of a sudden it would became the priority one to get everybody back into the office. And it was just, you know, just I think sometimes leadership doesn't really think about the bigger picture. And I get I think basically that's what you're saying. They get lost and they're they're blind. They have their own blind spots, I guess I would say. Well, they are. And by the way, that that's exactly right. There's a blind spot here. And the concept that I hear that irritates me maybe more than any is how much more difficult it is to manage remote workers. First, nobody wants to be managed. Right. Let's get rid of that term. If all you're doing is managing, then what you're telling people is, as long as I can control you, 
I'm good with our relationship. But the first time you want some autonomy, I want I don't want you here anymore. So let's not worry about that. What what should we be doing? How about this? We need to be leading, we need to be facilitating, we need to be coaching, we need to be mediating. This does not have to be done in purpose in person. If you think that that makes the difference, that makes it easier, then you don't have the right skill set. Right, right. So let me shift gears in your book Workquake, which I love, by the way, great book. Thank you. You have a quote in the book, and it says, "Come to my company so I can help you leave it." Yeah. I just love that that quote. Can you talk about it? Oh, absolutely. It's always interesting as you talk to uh, you talk to employers about. Look, I divide things into training and development. Training is I want you to get better at your current job, so I'm going to give you whatever skill sets and information you need and resources so you get better at performing because I, I want better performance. And by the way, you should want to be a better performer. So I'm going to do that. But the second part about this is developing. I want you to be developing for your next job. And one of the arguments that I get is, well, if I train them, then they're going to go find a better job. And I'm like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, if you don't train them, you're not getting the increased performance that you need to be a high performing company. So I say, come to my company and I'm going to give you the training and development that you need for your, not only to do better here, but for your next job. And if you go, I'm okay with that. By the way, am I going to try to keep you? Yes, I am. I'm going to try to convince you not to leave, but I want you to know that if you find something better for you, I want you to leave. And I want to prepare you for that journey. By the way, there's a great term, the boomerang employee, the one that leaves and comes back because they go out and they try whatever they wanted to try. It's a little bit different, but they then realize, I think I can now come back around, use my experience at a culture and, and in an organization that I value because you know why? They prepared me for this step. And they come back and welcome them. And that's the deal. Why get upset with someone who says they're going to leave? If they're the working dead, have cake. Everybody should have cake. If it's a good employee, a core employee, I would like to know why. Share that information with me so that I can get, make my organization better. But I want to tell you that first, you're welcome back anytime. This is something that really organizationally you have to do all the way through the process. Like you have to be, when you're helping someone grow, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have to be telling them, hey, someday it may come to a point where you want to take the next step and that may not be us. I'm okay with that. Yes. But it's a whole kind of philosophy all the way through, right? You don't just do it at the end and say, you know, hey, if you want to come back, the door is open. It, you kind of lead them through that. Is that correct culturally? Absolutely. And by the way, again, I'm a research junkie. And there is no question that millennials and Gen Zs, one of the things they continually say is, I want to be developed. I don't want. And, and so do you hear that message? Because either either you don't hear it, which means, you know, get your hearing tested, but but or you don't believe them. And why would you not believe what they're telling you? So guess what? Make that a part of who your organization is. We exist to train and develop people so they will meet their potential. And if it's not here, it's okay. From onboarding process, introduce them to the fact that you care enough about them to do this for them and you know what you get back, engagement. 
becomes productivity and profit. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. From onboarding process, introduce them to the fact that you care enough about them to do this for them, and you know what you get back? Engagement. Engagement comes productivity and profit. So switching gears, still on your book, but a different part, there was a scooter company called Bird, and you referenced them in the book. And I just I just love this part of the book. It said, your quote said, it felt like a Black Mirror episode. It was a case study in poor leadership. Can you share with us that story? <laughs> it's just an awesome story. They're hard to believe, actually. Thank you for reminding me, because <laughs> Bird was a scooter business. I think they may have gone bankrupt, kind of not <laughs> But regardless, they decided they were going to have to downsize. And by the way, employees understand when you have to downsize. I mean, they recognize reality. They may not like it. Uh, So, of course, Bird decides they're going to downsize. I think they had 600 employees total. 400 are going to be downsized. And, of course, the, the company decides the most humane way to do this is over a Zoom meeting without announcing in advance what it's about. So these 400 people are invited to a Zoom meeting. They assume that the leader of the company is going to talk to them about what's going to happen next. And instead, they get this disembodied voice that comes over the Zoom meeting and says, by the way, you're all fired. Screw you. But that's how I interpreted the message. Did you have any interaction? No. Did you talk about helping you get another job? No. And I was like, hmm. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, at the end of that, the announcement continued and said, by the way, this was a huge room that they'd invited people to. They said, outside the door is a cardboard banker's box with all of your desk material in it. It's labeled with your name on it. I was like, wow, uh, you know, hey, hey, I'm definitely going to try to come back to this company if they stay in business. Could you get, and I said it, for those who are familiar with Black Beer on Netflix, It is surreal that someone at this organization thought this was the way to do this. Yeah, I do love that show. One thing they did do, you got to applaud them. They marked the box with names. Now, they could have given you a number and said you're number seven. So at least least they took the time to write out the name. I tell you, obviously, they're an optimist. (laughs) I I tell people, you can be an optimist or a pessimist, or you can be me, a realist. So in the incident there, yeah, it was better than a number, but just barely. Right, right. Hey, another part of your book that I love, you said you might not be running a business in a traditional sense, but you are certainly running the business of you. And then you go on to talk about an entrepreneur's mindset. Can we talk about that a little bit? What is the entrepreneur's mindset? Why is that important? So my content, my my concept that I talk about in the book is that every company needs to be striving to get to self-directed work teams. That takes the concept of leadership and it puts it within the the members of the team. And that changes the person's mind when they're in control, when they have autonomy over their own work. 
because they suddenly look at it differently. It's that it's the ultimate buy-in. I'm an individual entrepreneur. So are you. And we look at our business with commitment and passion and enthusiasm that the normal person at any job doesn't. But I look at that and I go, that's all about control and autonomy. So for them to gain our our mindset about I'm commit. By the way, engagement is cool. Self-directed work teams about commitment. And it's about commitment to the vision of the organizations you belong to because you make it yours. And we talk about purpose a lot. This is where purpose actually resides in the ability of the person who has a value set to align their values with the value of the organization. And this only happens when I believe that I am a meaningful part of that organization. And to me, that's the entrepreneurial mindset. Why? Because I'm going to be as innovative as possible to do this job the best way possible so that the company and I both share. We actually go from being an employee to a partner. Directed work teams are all about that. They, they are exactly what they say. The, the members of that team, the team members, are committed to the goal. Now, they don't set the goal. I mean, obviously, the organization says, here's what we have to have you do. But, but it's kind of like saying, I'm now a freelancer. Because, again, if you give my team, as a self-directed team, a project, do you really care how we get it done? as long as we get it done within the context of deadline and obviously don't do anything illegal or buy or spend too much money. I mean, there's always a budget, but then, then just let people do it. And once again, if you love the outcome, they've benefited and you've benefited. To me, it's, it's how you get to the next level of an organizational impact. It's just, just the way you got to move it. I want to, as we close on talking about your book, what was the experience of writing a book like? Uh, was it a great experience? Was it a lot of, a lot of hard work worth it at the end? I'm, I have aspirations someday of writing books. <laughs> it was a terrible experience. <laughs> I, I absolutely, as you can tell, I could talk for hours and enjoy myself doing it, especially when we got someone that, that I can interact with. Uh, writing is a solitary, terrible experience. And by the way, I, it was even made worse by the fact that I was a lawyer because I would often be asked to then take a case if it was lost or if it was not, if it was challenged on appeal, uh, on to the next step. And that's, that is a brief writing process because the trial has already occurred and you're asking the appellate court to take a look at the trial. Uh, so that required writing briefs. And, and that required, by the way, the, the, the judicial system is not into creative writing. Right? They, they want to, you know, a, there, there's a, a, a show dragnet. I don't know, probably too, too, too far back in the history, but, but the sergeant there, Sergeant Friday, whenever he was faced with someone who was having an emotional breakdown, his response was just the facts. That was brief writing. So when I set out, and, and by the way, I was compelled to write a book. My wife said, biggest ego trap ever, writing a book. And I said, I can't help it. I've got things that I need to say. And I say it every day in my practice, in my coaching practice. I want to commit it to writing. So I started the painful process of writing. And uh, I actually got to 300 pages and I turned it over to the editor. And the editor said, um, it's not long enough. And I said, well, of course it's long enough. It's 300 pages. He said, by the time I get through editing it, 
uh, you need to recognize that it's going to be a lot shorter. He said, by the way, you sound like a robot. He said, he said, do you have a personality that you can put into this book? So I had to go back in the book and actually try to insert some humanity into it. Painful experience. But at the end of that rewrite, I was still 50 pages short. And uh, he said, I need another 50 pages. I said, I don't think I have it in me. He said, I'm not gonna, you won't publish the book then. Uh, so I, I decided I don't have a choice. And so I contacted three writing coaches. And my, my conversation, my dialogue with them was, I don't want you to criticize my writing. I don't even care what you think about my writing. What I need is 50 more pages. And, uh, and this writing coach said, well, if I can't help you become a better writer, uh, then I'm not interested. Fine. I'm going to pay you, but I'm not going to pay you for that. Uh, the second one was, eh, maybe. And I was like, well, no, you have to be engaged or not. The third one was like, well, tell me what you want to do here. I said, I want 50 pages. I need to do 50 pages in 50 days. Got to do a page a day. Now, that may sound like a, a very reasonable goal. But it wasn't. It just was not. I was done writing and I still had to do 50 pages. And so my my deal was, look, I'm going to pay you a flat fee just for being engaged with this. But my deal is that for every day I send you a page. And if I don't send you a page, I write you a check for $100. A penalty, basically. Yeah, of course. A self-imposed penalty. said, well, that means you want me to read the page and I said, give me you a, no, I don't want you to read the page and I certainly don't want you to give your opinion. I said, I don't care at this point. She was like, well, that could be insulting. I said, want to check? And she was like, all right. So so with that as the motivator to show you that I still remain uh, sometimes a dick, I would not pay that $100, paid $100 would have killed me. Just not financially, but philosophically. So I wrote it every day, a page. And I would wait until 11.59 p.m. And then <laughs> it said, and the, 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 the message said, you don't get a check today. <laughs> Needless to say, she earned her hurt, she earned her money. But that's how painful it was. And now I am preparing to write a second book, a sequel. And my wife was like, cutting for punishment, just can't help yourself. I was chuckling as you were explaining the pain and the grief in doing this, because in the end of your book, you say, this is a book that's going to need to be updated. And I just chuckled because I'm like, okay, that adds up. And then I'm also laughing because your frictional, you know, trial lawyer days, you still have that in you. I mean, with with, with your coach. Um, I'm curious though, on that $100 penalty, is that a type of system that you would use with clients? Do you ever do that? Or or should business owners be using a penalty system if that's what they need to get them over the hump? Well, and and let me, let me be clear about this. I believe that, that performance matters and therefore performance should be rewarded. Uh, Just to give you, and if you're not committed, look, I find it interesting that a lot of people who coach are not committed to the coaching process that they preach. Now, mine is about outcome and performance. So when I engage with a client, we do a 12-month contract, and the contract is a one-page deal. And the thing that I think makes my approach unique is I don't get paid until we get to the end of the contract and the client is able to determine we achieve the goals. So I put my compensation into the process. 
what I require out of the client is two things. First, we have to have some very clear goals. And we need to establish those goals, and they need to be meaningful. And then we need to have an action plan. My action plan is very simple. We have a coaching conversation every other week. Between the time we have our last coaching session and the time we have a next, there's an action step, at least one, that the person who's being coached needs to do. It may be the very simplest thing, like one that I love is go on the midnight shift. And they're like, why? Because they don't know who you are. Go there. They're your employees. Go and don't tell anybody you're coming. Just show up. And they're like, at midnight? No. They take a lunch break because you don't know this at four. So how about you get there at three, go into the lunchroom and sit out at a table. Do not tell the night supervision you're coming. Don't tell your people you're going because they'll tell the night supervision you're coming and you don't want the cleanup. You want to see what it actually looks like on a night of a normal night. I said, now the first time you show up, they're going to call the police because they think you're a stranger who broken into the company. They're like, are you serious? I said, yeah, you ever been there? What was the last time you were there? And there's this pregnant pause while they try to fabricate a date they think I'll accept. Oh, not in the last two or three years, right? No, okay. So, so guess what? That's your action step. And of course, when we talk, I go, did you go on the night shift, the third shift? And of course, if you say absolutely, then we talk about the experience because it is one, it's revealing. And, uh, and I, tell these guys, I tell everybody that does this, nobody talks to you the first time you're there. They don't know why you're there. They're afraid. The third time you show up is always the charm. And remember, you continue to show up unannounced. You just go in and you actually dress like a human being. Leave your tie off, put on a pair of jeans and go sit down at the workers table. And when the supervision comes in, tell them to leave so that you can have a real conversation with your employees about the third shift. Because the third shift's where all the interesting behavior takes place. I said, so that's the deal. We have that discussion. Now, (laughs) the second possibility is you're going to tell me you didn't go because there's always a reason not to get up at midnight, believe me. And I'm not going to be happy about that. And I'm going to make sure you understand I'm not going to be happy. You know why? My skin's in the game. And every time you make a commitment to me, I am entitled to hold you accountable for the commitment. Now, if you're not going to do it, tell me. I'm not going to do that. Okay, what are you going to do? Because you have to do something to get better. There has to be an action step. Otherwise, I see no commitment on your part. But if you've committed, then you made a commitment to yourself and you made a commitment to your partner, me. And I will hold you accountable to that commitment. Uh, That's hard work, by the way. I give people credit who go through the coaching process. So on that note of performance coach, is it usually around business owners that are growing their business or what, what are these types of performance things that you would help someone with? Absolutely. It's normally, it's normally successful people who are trying to become more successful, who are trying to overcome whatever blind spots and self-sabotaging behavior exists. And it always does. And no one has told them what it is. So as a coach, you're required to be a truth teller. You know, you hear this, uh, speak truth to speak truth to power. You know how difficult that is for a person who's employed by this guy? They, your job's on the line. 
Uh, now, you can say the same thing about being a coach, but I tell people I'm okay with that. That's what you're paying me to do. That's what I'm going to do. And we're going to have a conversation about your blind spots. And by the way, I will be able to tell you what they are. Not because I'm, I have the supernatural ability. I'm going to ask the people that report to you what they are. And they're going to tell me. They do every time. It's remarkable. Tyler, I can sit down in a focus group of complete strangers and say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm here to do. By the way, I promise you anonymity as a team. Individuals will not be called out. Now, if you don't trust the guy you're sitting next to, all you have to do is contact me on your own. Extraordinary what people will tell you about the company, their team leader, and the boss, the owner. Like, I then take that information, I put it into a nice little package, and I go, you know what? We just did the 360 review on top of the focus group. And let me tell you what it said about you as a communicator. And I always like to start with that one because that's an easy one. Every boss believes they're a great communicator. And that's because they believe in the power of telepathy. They believe that if they think it, you hear it. What always comes out inevitably is you suck as a communicator. You are so unclear. We have to ask each other after a meeting what you said. In consensus, we decide that was the message. I, that's true. That's just the way it is. And of course, they're shocked by this. It's like, well, that can't be possible because I'm a great communicator. No, no one knows what the mission or the purpose of the vision is. And by the way, the last meeting when you said you wanted them to do something, no one knew what that was. They all guessed. So, so once, once they hear that this information is not coming from me, it's coming from the people who actually do the work for them, it starts to open their eyes to the fact that they are blind to certain things. And I tell them the problem with, with being aware is that you now have to do something about it. Because if you ask people for the truth and they tell you and you don't do anything about it, don't ask them again because they're not going to tell it again. So that's our process and, uh, and it's painful. I, I tell people it's not necessarily hard, but it's painful. It is not easy. And once you face your blind spots and you recognize your pattern of self-sabotage, then we can start working on eliminating those things. Yeah, it sure sounds powerful. You know, one of my questions, which you already brought up in the beginning, but I want to revisit it, is you have a, a statement around, you're not the guy to hire for a life coach, but you're the guy to hire for a performance coach. And I totally understand now. <laughs> it made me laugh that when I first read it, it makes me laugh now. <laughs> well, and again, I, I found that, uh, that of the people who contact me, only about 20% decide that they really want to go through the process. And, you know, it, it sounds fantastic to say, well, I've got 100% of my, uh, my uh, compensation at risk because that's how much I value the process and my ability to help you. Uh, because you've set the goals. Uh, we just set them together. And if I think they're unrealistic, I'm going to say you're not going to be able to accomplish that. I also have found that it takes 12 months. Uh, transformation is, is not a quick process. It requires commitment, time, and action. And as you change your behavior, you, you change everything else. But the clause in there that I point out to everybody is, if you engage and you quit, you pay me the total 12 months. I don't care if you quit in month one or you quit in month 11. I'm locking you in. Either, either you commit to, and, and most people are like, whoa, you know, I like the part where, where you're willing to put your compensation at risk, but you really want me to 
to 12 months when we might not? Yeah, I do. That's where we're going to get results. Right. So, hey, I want to switch gears as we're about to wrap up. Sure. Do you have a book that you're reading now or just one of your all-time favorite books that you can share? I'd love to walk away with something that you enjoy. I'm not going to be able to recover, and it's a shame that I don't. It's called It's Your Ship. It's Your Ship. Okay. It is written by a retired admiral, and I apologize to him for not remembering his name, but he took over the worst ship in the United States Navy. And Within 12 months, he turned it around and rank, it ranked in the top 10% of, based on their performance within 12 months. And the way he did it was, it wasn't his ship, it was the cruise ship. And see, to me, that is, the, that is absolutely what you do. Yeah, that's powerful. I'll put, I'll look it up, of course, and I'll put it in the show notes, the name Thank of the you. book, the name of the author. That's an awesome one. Now, I got one more fun one before we wrap up. You got a ton of knowledge. I almost feel like every question I asked you could have been a whole show in itself, and we didn't really do justice to the questions. But having said that, is there something that you could give us a tip, whether it be a personal tip or a business tip, that we can apply in our lives, and, and, and hopefully it'll make us better if we apply it? Okay. I, first, I, I'm looking up right now. I've got eight and a half uh, pieces of paper with stuff written on them, right? That, that absolutely apply to me. But, but I believe that, that everybody needs to know what their purpose is. And I'm a numerologist. The number to me is always three. And I can tell you what mine are. And one is my purpose is to satisfy curiosity. It's also to generate potential. And the third thing is to make others smile. And I operate off of those. And I believe that everyone needs to sit down and spend the the time to reflect on what their purpose is. And they need to write it down and then they need to post it where, like I said, I'm looking up at mine right now, where you see it every day so that you live your purpose. If you can't figure that out, you are not going to be satisfied with your professional life. You may make enough money, but you're not going to have anything other than that because your purpose has got to guide you through your professional life and hopefully in your in your personal life. Because at the end of the day, you need to know, did you fulfill your purpose? And if you have it in front of you, you can make that assessment. Most of the people at the end of the day are happy they survived. I think Thoreau actually had a quote about that, that I often feel that people who are working are living lives of quiet desperation. They are so unhappy with their with their work life. How many hours we spend at work, how much of our energy and time and passion is, is consumed by the job. Make it meaningful. And if it's not meaningful, if you can't see your purpose there, Think about your job differently, and I'll shut up. You've got me, you've turned on another faucet here. But but I always use the examples, okay? The new head of NASA, this must be 15 years ago, new head of NASA is touring the building, and he sees a cleaning lady pushing a cart of cleaning equipment, and it's apparent she's janitorial. And he walks up to her because he's introduced himself to everyone. He introduces himself to her, and he says, my name is so-and-so, and I'm this. And he says, and he looks at her, and she says, who are you? He says, what do you do here? Thinking, of course, she's going to say, you know, I cleaned the john. She says, I help put people on the moon. Now, I actually get choked up with that response because there's someone who had a purpose, 
and it wasn't cleaning the bathroom. But the concept was they had connected their job and doing it the right way to that purpose. And I'm like, that is so powerful. What every leader needs for every employee to know the purpose of the organization and to connect their job, their effort to that. I'll use one more. Brazil, trash collection. And you have people standing for eight hours at a conveyor. And what they're doing is they're separating the recyclables from the garbage. Same questions asked. What are you doing? What's your job? Saving the environment. Had nothing to do with trash. If you can make that commitment, and if you can't, I ask, I ask you, do you know your purpose? If you don't know yours, don't expect anyone else to know the purpose. But once you know your purpose, then it's your job to communicate it. Every day and every interaction, bar none. Anyway. That's, that's, I mean, you, you said the word is powerful. It's uh, a great, great thing you're illustrating there is just how people are connecting the bigger picture to what they're doing. And that's that's awesome. You have so much wisdom to share. Well, thank you. I'll put in the show notes, paulglovercoaching.com. paulglovercoaching.com. That's where the audience will go. Is there anywhere else you'd like to send uh, folks or you'd like them to visit or reach out to you? Any other sources? Well, you know, and I, and I make this offer first. I appreciate you and, and what you do. I seriously, I could not be, a, I, obviously, I want to do the talking. I don't want to ask the intelligent questions. <laughs> but, but if you're not, if you're not asking the right questions, obviously what you get out of me is nothing of value to your audience. And I, I appreciate the fact you know your audience and you're asking the questions that hopefully give them value. Uh, because of that, anyone who does reach out to me, and it's a, my, my email is paul at paulglovercoaching.com gets a free copy of my book sent to them. Awesome. That would be great. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes too. And uh, once again, I can't thank you enough. Um, you're just a blast to talk with. And it's part of why I enjoy doing this is I get to talk with people that are incredibly knowledgeable, have had a great career, now are sharing their stories and helping people. So, so thank you so much, Paul. Tyler, thank you very much for the opportunity, not only to talk to you, but to your audience. Awesome. Take care. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, is that the No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. 
electric acid. 